Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 174 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we chat with Nancy Lawson, author of Wildscape and The Humane Gardener. The plant profile is on mock orange, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with the last word on visiting the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum by Christy Page at the Food Gardening Network. This episode, we're joined by Nancy Lawson. She is the author of Wildscape and the Humane Gardener. Welcome, Nancy. Hey, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you on. So I've attended a few of your talks. We've known each other for a few years, but I'm so happy to finally have you on the podcast. Yeah, that's great to be here. Thank you. So most of our conversation, we're going to focus on your newer book, Wildscape. Uh, But before we jump into that, we like to ask our guests here on the Garden DC podcast, were they born with chlorophyll in their veins and a green thumb? (laughs) Yeah, so I, um, I was born to parents who were very into gardening. Um, My dad was a plant pathologist and his specialty was flowers. He ran the florist and nursery crops lab at the USDA. Um, And so at a time when, you know, most um, places, at least where we lived, I grew up in Bowie um, in Prince George's County, it was almost entirely lawns, but my dad carved out his whole front yard um, with flower beds. And so I really, from an early age, appreciated plants, but I wouldn't say that I had much of an interest in it until I moved into an apartment and I wanted to put pots on my balcony and things like that. Um, And and I also... I, I wanted to say with the, with the phrase green thumb, um, a lot of people will tell me, oh, you know, I wish I could do what you do, but I don't have a green thumb or I kill plants and they're talking about houseplants. And, um, and, you know, I, I mean, I think a lot of us have killed a lot of houseplants over mm-hmm. time because they're in such an unnatural environment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think, I like people to not think that it's actually inherent to them. Uh, at the same time, I appreciate the question, but because I love hearing how people got into this, but um, I just wish we could get people to understand that plants actually, you know, know how to grow too. They don't all need to be pampered like a house plant. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. And, and those that live best on their own are, are the, my favorite plants yeah, <laughs> with the least amount of input. So that must be a wonderful childhood to grow up surrounded by plants and people who are immersed in the plant world. And for our listeners who are outside the Washington, D.C. area, Prince George's County is just north of Washington, D.C., Um, and maybe you can describe for our listeners a little bit about where you're gardening now and kind of where you're located and what that climate and soil is like. 
Yeah, so I'm in Sykesville in Howard County, which is, um, we're sort of, you know, about an hour from DC and a half hour from Baltimore, um, sort of rural um, and kind of, you know, rural sprawl, I guess I would say, um, is our community now. But um, when we moved here, it was a little over two acres of mostly lawn surrounded by um, a wooded edge. Uh, behind us, there's a stream and our neighbors have, you know, trees between the houses. And so um, it was sort of a blank slate. There were um, things like Bradford pears here that the previous people had planted, uh, but not much else. And so um one of the things that over time I've done to try to learn about what could grow here is just to see what comes up. And sometimes that was out of just getting busy and not actually, you know, paying enough attention to the vegetable garden or something like that. Um, and then sassafras trees would come in and things like that. Um, some of it was intentional where we would just leave certain areas because it is a big space in the back, uh, leave certain areas unmowed, like my husband would mow around big circles that we let go. And then we would see different types of blue stem grasses like broom sedge come in, um, you know, different native forbs that thrive on disturbance, um, like the field asters and such. And um, so that was a way of actually learning about the soil too, you know, to see what types of plants really either were already here in the seed bank or were brought in and could, could grow well. Um, so now we have, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of wooded area um, that just came in on its own and that's really exciting. But then I also plant a lot of also particularly shrubs I've been focusing on the last few years. Cause you know, we don't have much of that middle layer around here Um in a lot of places, people will plant a few trees, but mostly they just mow giant lawns. So there's no kind of refuge cover and such for the birds and other animals. Hmm. And so I think you're zone seven, correct? Um, yeah. I mean, when we moved here, it was 6B7A. So it's kind of you know, like it's, it, we're in Howard County and the main um, urban center in Howard County is Columbia, very dense. It's a little warmer there, um, but because we're sort of far flung out, it's a little bit cooler. So I'm not really sure, I guess with the new um, categories that just came out, maybe we're solidly seven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I haven't really looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you are because we all, some of us moved up a half uh, zone with the new map from the USDA that just came out for their zones, but we already yeah. knew probably we were already at that. It was just that they yeah. confirmed it. Yep. Yeah. Um, so in your background, we kind of skipped over how, you know, we had your upbringing surrounded by plants, but what career path you chose? Was it a green career path? No, actually. So, you know, I was, um, uh, already into writing. I mean, it was one of those things that in school, that's the main thing that I was good at. So that's why I decided to pursue that um, in 
college and I majored in journalism. And then I worked for newspapers uh, for a while. And then I went to, it was sort of like around 27 years old. And I, um, I wanted to get out of that kind of daily grind. I was always interested in exploring topics more in depth and um, my friend brought me an ad for a, a job at the Humane Society of the U.S. and it was an, as an as an editor at Animal Shelter Magazine, and so um, that was like a dream job to me. So I ended up being there for sixteen or seventeen years um, and just worked on a lot of different issues um, because it, it that's a national organization that covers all different, um, like they have an urban wildlife department, farm animals, pets, and such. And so I worked on the, um, whenever I worked on the urban wildlife issues, I got more and more interested because at that time I was also getting more interested in gardening. And I, I, we moved here, we bought our house in 2000 and, um, and I was really interested in some of the things I was writing about, like humane geese control. And, you know, people were kind of implementing these different strategies um, that seemed really intensive to me, like egg addling and shaking to prevent the eggs from hatching and stuff. But there was a, there was a, um, a company in Pennsylvania that was pioneering these kind of native plant buffers along the waterways and um, growing growing these um, tall sort of, they were almost like visible. They blocked the sight line on visibility for the geese. Um, and then they didn't want to, they wouldn't want to like set up shop and nest in an area where they couldn't easily see the water because they like to escape to it when they're molting and they can't fly as well. And that just made me think about the ways that we can use plants to help solve conflicts with wildlife. Um, mm-hmm. Not just to welcome them to the garden, but to try to, um, you know, restore these kind of denuded landscapes to 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 um, t- to mitigate some of the the problems that people have. Um, and and so I didn't really, I mean, pursue that as a profession until about 2014. I was writing a wildlife column for our membership magazine, and a publisher just um, contacted me and said, "Do you want to do?" A book on this so, so I ended up officially going down this road which was you know that would have been my dream but I don't think I would have pursued it unless someone just kind of pushed me into it like that so you know just a fate mm. thing I guess excellent so that was your first book the humane gardener and that has a subtitle um nurturing a backyard habitat for wildlife and wildscape uh, is your second book Trilling chipmunks, beckoning blooms, salty butterflies, and other sensory wonders of nature. <laughs> um, so let's first talk about the humane gardener a little bit. What is the um, definition, I guess, of a humane gardener? Um, yeah, so, it, so someone who welcomes the wildlife but also tries to humanely resolve those conflicts um, or potential conflicts or prevent them and, and looks out not only for, you know, um, kind of the obvious things, but also there are these unintentional hazards that you can introduce into the landscape that once you learn about them, you should be looking for alternatives if you're trying to help wildlife, like 
like garden netting, you know, which a lot of animals end up in wildlife rehab centers because of that flexible netting and they get stuck in it. And so there's, there's that aspect of it too. Um, and just trying to go lightly, you know, lightly on the land and learn what's, who's already living there, um, uh, how you can coexist with them or, or nurture more habitat for them. Um, yeah. And not just appreciate the, the butterflies, but also the groundhogs and the rabbits and <laughs> all those mm-hmm. people, all those animals that gardeners tend to, you know, be wary of. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking um, some of our listeners are thinking deer in particular. Deer, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was one of our biggest, you know, head on conflicts for a lot of gardeners, especially those um, in more close in suburbs and urban areas where the deer pressure is intense. Where Well, I got to tell you, it of, is here too. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. yeah, it is here too. Um, that we have, they, they probably eat more plants here that a lot of my friends say deer will never eat than anywhere else. And part of that is because around us, um, you know, there really just isn't much else. And yes, they love native plants because they evolved with them. And so, um, and that's, you know, that's what I, mainly what I plant here. And so, yeah, I mean, but I, I think, you know, they're already here and there are, one of the issues with, with, um, with with what like what's happening for example in my situation is that we did basically start with nothing you know so when you're trying to restore a landscape you don't already have all of those sort of protective plant communities that start to happen in the wild um in in there and there are places where you know there's deer pressure but it's it's so it's been so long um since somebody disturbed the land that there's sort of enough um, enough that the plants can still grow and be browsed and everything. And so I think, you know, our starting point is such a low point in a lot of our properties that that's why it's very frustrating for people. Hmm. And so when somebody comes to you and says, I'm not planting any more native plants or I'm not gardening at all anymore because of the deer, um, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, and sometimes people can't do the caging because it's like in their front yard in a very visible spot or something like that. Um, But that is what I do when I first plant a shrub or a tree. Um, You know, we do have these situations where we've got these sort of protective plants that when we're letting, kind of letting plants start to mingle and volunteer on their own, we've noticed you know, if something comes up in the black raspberry patch, it doesn't tend to get eaten as a sapling the way it would in another spot because the the deer will nibble on the edges of those patches, but they don't really like to go inside them. So that's one thing. And that's been, there's a really interesting study in England um, on these similarly denuded places, um, more because it was old agricultural land that was left to go fallow. And then they watched to see what would happen. And and the hawthorns and the brambles and all of that were actually really wonderful nurse plants um, for these for these uh, larger oak trees and such. And so I think, you know, when we're when we're thinking about bringing those plants back, we have to think in terms of not just planting that one tree, but a whole community. 
um, of plants around it. And so, I mean, the same thing with, I would say if somebody's like, I'm never planting again because of the deer, well, okay, let's start with mountain mint, you know, and, um, and that is the one thing here that they, they don't eat and they don't, and they won't eat things like bone set, you know, the eupatoriums because they have those alkaloids in them. Um, I've only seen them eat those once in the fall when the plants are kind of pulling back on their defenses because they don't need them anymore uh, for the season. But in general, they're not going to eat those. And so there's, you know, there's minty plants that you can, that you can plant. There's the Pacara that you're generally aren't, you know, they might like that um, when they're first planted. Um, they might ha have their defenses up yet, but generally they're not going to eat that. So there's, there's ways that you can not only, you know, plant some of those resilient plants, but also um, think about the combinations of plants. And I was really excited when Larry Weiner's book first came out, Garden Revolution, because he talked about this um, and doing it intentionally. And to that point, I had only done it, you know, accidentally um, when I saw those combinations happening here. But he talked about how he does in meadows, he'll plant some of those protective plants that are chemically defended in the same hole with the more vulnerable species. Um, and so, you know, there's all kinds of little tricks you can try like that. Hmm. I think that is such a wonderful ingenious solution and, you know, develop naturally. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I yeah. love the term uh, nurse plant or protective plant, but I think nurse plant is really descriptive or nurse planting around something. And I could yeah. see, course you put in a couple little oak saplings that you're trying to uh, foster or something and you wire cage them and then they still kick it over or get in there um, but getting right. something around it and then cutting whatever that is maybe back or removing it in future years right right and and you know those things will start to get shaded out um, that you first mm -hmm. plant around it um, but then other stuff comes in or you can plant other things and um, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun, you know, and it's, it can be, I, I understand that it can be frustrating. I just think that, you know, we, we've taken over so much of the land and it's, it's really not, not just, just the deer that are eating sometimes too. I think that's the first thing we tend to think. Um, but I've noticed over the years when I think it's a deer, uh, oftentimes it is a rabbit or it's a groundhog, um, you know, and you can tell by the way they chew and stuff, but sometimes you can't if they're just ripping off a leaf here and there. Um, and, and that's the thing too, like I'll look like along the edges of pathways I'll have, cause they tend to wander the pathways like we do, cause it's easier for them to take the path of least resistance and just nibble here and there. And so I'll put things that they do like to eat sometimes and mix them in like some of those very, um, uh, you know, prolific cedars like common evening primrose or something. They'll always nibble on those if they can. And so I'll just, I have those native plants coming up in the cracks of my driveway and stuff. So I'll just pull them out and move them along the edges of, of the pathways. And that serves as a buffer sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. Leaving things like pokeweed, which a lot of people don't like, but I think they don't get to see it when it comes into its full when it really is allowed to grow, sometimes it makes the coolest heads or even just a big bush or something. And the deer will eat that too at certain times of year. And so these plants can be really neat buffer plants. Hmm. I think I would use the term trap crop. 
Yeah, <laughs> trap crumb. <laughs> Almost because that's definitely what I do for the rabbits in my garden is I plant, you know, white clover, little uh-huh. uh, circle of that. And that's my little trap crop to keep the rabbits over there and away from right. the perennials I don't want. So that's, yeah, having those little pockets along a pathway that are easily accessible and, and you're like, eat this, don't eat this. Right. Um, it would be nice if the deer could read and you could put a little sign there pointing <laughs> right. to it. But yeah, um, so that is probably a good thing to provide a little bit of forage and food and hopefully protect the the rest of it. Right. So let's uh, talk about your new book that came out this year and Wildscape is the title and that's all one word like landscape, but Wildscape. Um, So let's define a Wildscape. Yeah, so... um... I used that title to kind of wrap in all the sensory scapes uh, that I was exploring in that book and kind of to help people think beyond what we see right in front of us, but also how the animals are perceiving it, how they're not only seeing it, but how they're smelling it, how they're, what they're how they're touching things and how that affects both the plants and animals um, survival and ability to thrive, how they're, um, how they're, uh, what the taste, what the taste and the preferences for certain plants um, is doing in the, in the landscape and how it's, how dynamic that is. And so, um, and then the soundscape which is really what led me down that road in the first place, because the soundscape is, is, um, it's a little bit easier to understand. um, In some ways, there's a lot we can't hear that certain animals can, but um, in terms of how it's being disrupted, and I think I wanted to this book started because I was lamenting sounds, this mainly the soundscape with, um, with Will, my husband, I was talking to him about how I wish people would just think for a moment about how other organisms perceive the world, because maybe they wouldn't, you know, use those leaf blowers for two hours on a Saturday at seven o'clock in the morning when the dawn chorus is going or something. Um, and then he said, well, why don't you write a book on that? Because there's so many books on, on uh, how on sensory environment for people, you know, and gardening for the senses for people. And, and um, so, yeah, so that was, that's kind of the, the, how I, how I thought about the wildscape being well beyond what, what we perceive, but what the, what the other organisms out there are are doing and perceiving and how they're acting based upon that. Mm -hmm. And I think what I really like about your book is when we do consider, you know, what the animals are perceiving in our gardens and with their senses and how they experience it, it makes it a better experience for us as well. So, you know, your example of the leaf blowers, I mean, none of us likes two hours of you know, right at dawn leaf blowing next to our house (laughs) across the street. Um, That's just like flat out common sense consideration, but um, it could make it better for all of us, but especially our animal friends who have much more sensitive senses. Um, I think I was trying to think of the statistics 
um, for their hearing is, you know, usually 10 times that of a human being. And of course, a lot more sensitive um, sense of smell and taste usually than humans. But sometimes animals, their eyesight is not as um, keen or that they're crepuscular, like dawn and dusk. Uh, like right. our rabbits and deer, so they only perceive they you know in straight sunlight it's more difficult or they are not full spectrum. Um, so maybe let's start with the sense of sight in the garden and and how we can assist our animal friends with that. Yeah, and it's it's all over the map, you know, in terms of how animals per- perceive things, and so you know sometimes their sense of their sense of senses are similar, like. Um, birds, you know, they, they, we have a pretty keen sense of sight, um, uh, in, in comparison to birds in some ways are similar, but they actually, um, they just see differently. So, so, I mean, and it depends on the type of bird too. Um, I was reading this really great book, um, when I was writing my book by, um, I think his name was Graham Martin, and it was about um, bird senses. And um, it, it he talks about how the songbirds, their vision is um, is sharper to the side because you know because of where the eyes are in their head, and also because they're kind of looking. Their field of vision is it's important to them to be able to see this to the side as they're flying, see predators. Um, and and so it's a wider range of vision, but they're not looking toward, they're not as focused toward the front. And so, and I started getting interested in that because I was like, well, why do they, why do they fly into windows so much? And, you know, of course it's the reflection and the transparency, but there's also this, this lesser ability to, they're not looking in front of them as much mm-hmm. um, and they're not as prepared for the, I mean, they've evolved mostly to have open sky and natural materials and trees. And, um, and then all of a sudden we have our, you know, wind turbines in our houses and, and all these things that are in the way. And so that was, that's one thing that I found really interesting um, with a sense of sight. And then the, the other things, um, we're just like thinking about ways that animals are kind of deceiving each other um, through visual uh, crypsis <laughs> and, um, you know, caterpillars, the emerald moth caterpillars dressing up in flowers so that they're not seen as much by predators and the tree frogs able to change color to match the leaf or to match the bark it within, you know, within a very short frame of time. And, and, um, and so I think kind of thinking about all the different ways that animals are not only seeing to feed, but seeing to not be seen and not be eaten was really mm-hmm. interesting to me. Mm. That reminds me of uh, one of the bunnies that I always see who freezes in place and thinks that you don't see them. And I'm like, oh, I see you. <laughs> but, but, maybe, <laughs> yes. but maybe the fox doesn't see you when you freeze in place. But yes, <laughs> right. that's maybe not the best way to protect yourself. <laughs> Stand out, but stand still. 
Um, right. So let's go on to a uh, sense of smell or fragrance. Yeah. So that I really was like, how do I think about this and, and write about this? Because I feel like even though we can detect a trillion different smells that's been found in the last, you know, few years, I just feel like that sense is so dull in me. Um, and, you know, while I can smell and really appreciate the incredible flower senses, which I think you talked about in a recent podcast, there's so many other scents going on out there and they mean something so different to the animals. And so um, I kind of started by um, just thinking about how, again, they're, they're kind of using these, um, they're using scent either to hide or to repel predators or, you know, it, animals are, and then the flowers are trying to attract um, or repel as well. And so one of the first threads I went down was the, the fritillary caterpillar that I have in the book um, um, who was, um, you know, I, I, I hadn't really, I hadn't really come across one eating a violet uh, yet at that time. I, I knew they were there because I could see the adults a lot, but there was one eating a violet. So I got down with my phone and was recording and then noticed just this it bulges passing through the body and noticed um, how he would just shoot his poop, um, his, his green little pellets out really far. And then I started trying to figure out if I could find them, but <laughs> I think he shot them really far. And so then I looked it up and then I found these papers by Martha Weiss at Georgetown and she really pioneered this defecation ecology field. And she was trying to get people more interested in it. When I talked to her, she said, you know, it's such an important aspect of their lives. Because in this case, she did a really neat study to rule out other possibilities for why the caterpillar might be doing that. And, and confirm that it was because um, there, this was a, with silver spotted skipper, skipper caterpillars they were um, trained to um, uh, not be not be found by dark paper wasps, and so they didn't want to be s smelled out by them. And um, and and so you know she, but then there's these other there's these other caterpillars that I mean there's these other insects that will use their poop to to protect themselves, um, like the the one spotted tortoise beetle that he talked about too on my talk and in my book where um, they make a fecal shield out of wild bergamot flowers uh, out of, yeah, out of, you know, after they've digested the flowers and they, and they look like these big, you know, kind of big balls of poop attached to their back end and that deters predators. And, it, and so that's how they're using the wild bergamot strong minty scent to, to deter predators. And I went down a real rabbit hole with that because I found out that those, um, that this guy, Ken Kiefer over ring, who's now in Wisconsin had done studies on this and found that, um, 
you know, the, the one-spotted tortoise beetles really preferred a certain chemotype of wild bergamot, not just the, any wild bergamot. And they really thrived and survived better on one that um, was dominated by thymol, which is the essential oil in thyme. And so it depended on the chemical makeup of the plant. And, um, and when it was dominated by carvacrol, which is the monoterpene dominant in oregano, they didn't, they didn't fare as well. And so, I mean, that was just really interesting to me. They spend their whole lives on wild bergamot and, um, and apparently have this preference for this even narrower, not just the plant, but the, you know, the subtype, the chemotype. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say fascinating. And for those of us who love uh, Earl Grey tea, we also <laughs> have a love of that scent. Um, so delicious. And yeah. so let's see. So pretty much directly related, of course, to scents is taste. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of started off with that thinking about, obviously, like native plants and and are they, you know, are they actually, obviously they're more preferred by um, a lot of animals that have evolved with them. But, um, but also, you know, when we're disrupting that with like hanging bird feeders with seed thistle from a completely other country or something, how is that, how is that affecting um seed dispersal you know if the birds are going more to there than to the plants that we've planted and um and that you know eating and pooping out those seeds and but I also was thinking about things that people um maybe get upset about animals just eating in general like of course uh, a lot of different insects going to the milkweeds and and I think the word has gotten out more about um insects you know a lot of insects need milkweed and that even the ones that we consider maybe um are just ruining it really aren't necessarily or they have predators like aphids have ladybugs or they have other um things attracted to them um parasitic wasps and stuff like that and so um, so I looked into 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 those types of studies because even though it's more out there now, I, I still see tons of people on social media like, oh my gosh, should I spray my milkweed or, or whatever? Um, because there's I want it for the monarchs, and it's like, no, these animals mm-hmm. also need to use this. So, and there are there is research showing you know that. Um, Sometimes the more insects that are on it, the less likely a monarch caterpillar is to be preyed upon, right? Because there is more for predators and parasitoid wasps and such to to eat and catch. So, um, so and then just kind of how parasites might help, like um, you know um, things that we don't necessarily even think about because we're not seeing it and. Um, parasites inside the horn passless beetle which is my just kind of I just think they're the coolest little beetles they're also called um, patent leather beetles you know because they're so shiny and 
-hmm. And I only see them in the wood chips or in the, but they like living in rotting logs. And it's so neat to learn about their life history. They, the mother and father raise, raise the young. And then sometimes the young will help raise the next generation. And um, they're really gentle. But there was this study about the time I was starting to work on this about the nematodes that live inside them and how they're totally harmless, except the beetles have to eat a lot more to feed these parasites. So they keep breaking down more and more wood, which is those beetles are decomposers. And so together the nematodes and the beetles are eating a lot of wood and doing a you know good job for the ecosystem. And just see all these little interesting things like that. And, um, and then I also wanted to talk about how plants defend themselves, like we talked about earlier from in the tayscape and from um, nibbling, like, um, you know, how, how all these different strategies that they have um, to defend themselves and um, the chemical alarms that they can use to draw the predatory insects or, um, you know, some of them will kind of retreat when they're getting nibble, but they'll actually, you know, expand their root systems. Um, and so you don't see that happening because it's underground. But, um, and the other thing I got, I kind of, um, got interested in, I think I put it maybe in the, in the, in the scentscape in my book, but it's also part of the tastescape. So many of these things were overlapping was the Monarch, um, the Monarch RX project that, um, uh, that, that evolved out of, um, seeing monarchs going to dead leaves in my, in my garden and ex extracting something from them and then finding out that they're getting these paralyzing alkaloids from bone set and blue mist flower and other plants that have them. Hmm. But, and that the plants are actually have those PAs to deter, to deter browsers and, and nibblers like deer and rabbits. But then, but then the, mo the monarchs have figured out how to commandeer those chemicals for their own defenses. So yeah, so that was, just just exploring these different interactions in and the reason that I I I went down the all these different paths was that I had to shorten what I was doing because there was a relatively small word count. And so I I wanted to make the framework be like what and it was during the pandemic. So what can what can what can you discover in your own place and what and look at things through the lens of what I was seeing here. Um, mm -hmm. so that I had some stories to follow and not, if I had tried to do a whole book on all the senses and someone did around the same time called an immense world by Ed Young on animal senses. And it's amazing, but it's a tome. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Cause he's a science writer and, um, and he had a huge book <laughs> to work with. So I um, can imagine. Yeah. And I would say, you know, like a lot of us published authors, you are limited in word count and page count because, you know, it's printed. Yeah. It's not, if it's digital, you can, you know, go on and on and on um, right. as long as you pay for that bandwidth. Uh, so I guess it does bring us to um, the question of, is there any research that you would have liked to include in the book that didn't make it in there just because of page length or word count and or did something come out right after the book, which inevitably happens, right? Some new research, you're like, oh, I wish I could have included that in my book. Yeah, I mean, so, and Ed has it in his, and it's, um, 
and I, I, so my, my, my book was mainly the primary senses that we're used to hearing about with people, um, with the scent and sight and sound and touch and taste, but there is also, I mean, there are also just so many other ways of perception that we're just becoming aware of too. And so one of them is the electro, like electric fields around flowers. Um, those, that research was just starting to come out and, um, you know, that that's another way that pollinators use to get cues from flowers and whether, you know, someone has already been there and gotten the pollen and nectar for now and that sort of thing. And um, somebody last year came out with a study about how fertilizers uh, are um, disrupting those electric fields. And so bees weren't foraging as much on those plants. Um, and it's the same thing as it's similar to in the odor to, in the scent chapter how I'd written about the fungicide studies on um, on uh, bees' ability to find some, like wild bergamot and some of the native flowers. And so, um, yeah, the electric the electric uh, perception is really interesting, and then the magneto reception. Um, and birds perceiving magnetic fields and for navigation and things like that. And so that, and that is a really, um, it's been a difficult field um, with a, lo a lot of argument is my understanding. And they, and they, it's really interesting hypotheses for how different animals are um, perceiving the earth magnetic field. But, um, and it's known that they do that, but um it's it's still not there's some good theories it's still not quite clear how um what the reactions are there um chemical reactions and stuff so but so those are things i didn't um i didn't cover um that yeah. are also very important you know to the perceptual world mm -hmm. yeah so many layers and so much that's not known um, that we're not perceiving, of course, with our human senses. I mean, can you imagine being sensitive to the world's magnetic fields <laughs> and then being pulled in one way or the other? Um, oh, I got to go home. <laughs> I know. So and apparently, so interesting. yeah. And, and in that other book, he talks about that, how apparently we, we can be. Um, we just mm -hmm. don't know it. And maybe not as much, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's... <laughs> Maybe right, that's but it's, what people call wanderlust or something like that. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we're like being called and we don't know how to frame that or it's been, you know, out of our human experience for thousands of years. Yeah. And maybe some of us are, are, you know, it's evolved out of us or we're born without it because my sense of direction has always been terrible. And I'm like super excited <laughs> that at this day of age, we have GPS and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. but we might be different yeah. by individual it, too. And like everybody, yeah, some are more sensitive than others, just like some creatures are more sensitive than others. Mm -hmm. um, so in our last few minutes, I know you're doing a lot of work um, with HOAs, um, home association, home ownership associations and civic associations um, in the wildscaping uh, field and in Washington Gardener magazine, we profiled your sister. So we definitely have yeah. to mention that and yes, her work in getting the Maryland law passed. So let's talk about that and spread the word a little on that. 
Yeah. Um, so she, um, I had, I had kind of done, you know, some writing like a lot of us had on how to work with your HOA. Cause it's a big topic. Like we're trying to get people to appreciate plants and make gardens and then they get slapped down for it. And I had already been, um, you know, uh, in, in my talks before this happened to Janet, ask questions about that at the end. Like I can't, I got cited for moss in my garden or, you know, these ridiculous for leaving pine, pine cones and stuff like that. And, um, so I knew that there were some ugly cases, but it was my impression that, you know, oh, and I still think you should start with, you know, outreach and education. If, if, if somebody starts complaining about, about your garden. Um, but with in Janet's case, it went from like zero to a hundred just overnight. Somebody complained about her garden. It ended up only ever being one neighbor and um, it was in Columbia um, in Howard County. And, um, and she, you know, she earnestly put up a sign and wrote a letter back saying, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do some, you know, we haven't pulled the weeds in a couple of weeks. So I just did that and explaining things to them, why they're gardening the way they are. And it just turned into a huge, um, they not only didn't, they came back with basically um, a letter all about how they ha there's no place for an environmentally sensitive agenda in the community. And the community was built only for lawns and, um, and, you know, accusing them of wanting to attract birds, like it was a bad thing. And, and so hmm. um, it, it was really difficult. We tried to, we went to a hearing that was a very much like a sham hearing um, run by the hired lawyer at the time for the HOA. And so um, eventually there was no choice for Jana and Jeff, her husband, but to, but to sue because they were, they were, giving them citation after citation and the lawyer advised you need to do it first um and the HOIC back um and then eventually I mean she won the right to save almost the entire garden they had to do a setback of about um I think it was six feet from the sidewalk um, but they could keep everything else. And we ended up, they, all they said was they had to plant green grass along the sidewalk. So we planted native sedges. <laughs> we just did a little bit of <laughs> fudging there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then at the same time, the there was a, a movement to... Um, to well she started going to environmental events and stuff to meet some of the people like b city and meets and and she talked to some legislative people and one reached out to her and said you know this is really terrible and i think we should introduce some legislation and it was just amazing because i i, I mean you know we always hear that that's impossible but somehow they figured it out. They modeled it on a law that was already existing in Maryland um, related to solar panels. And they they just did a Terry Hill and um, Jessica Feldmark introduced it and did a really good job of um, getting people on board. And I think because it was mainly a positive piece of legislation, it's not a ban, you know, it's just like 
telling HOAs you need to allow, um, and it has language in the law that's really cool, like rain gardens, she biohabitat gardens. She said, she said stuff about wildlife being wildlife friendly. Um, and then there is something toward the end saying you can't require turf grass um, in cultivated areas. And so, um, so it's been it's been really cool. There's a there's been movement in. Um, other states. So Maine just passed a law that's, the text is a lot shorter, but they took a bunch of texts from the Maryland law. They called it a low impact landscaping law, the same, same language. And, um, and so uh, there's been other states that have reached out, other people working on it. I think it's given people a lot of hope that, mm-hmm. you know, there can be some movement in Minnesota. They've just passed a thing. Um, it's related more to the weed laws, uh, but it supersedes all the local weed laws, which I think is amazing. Yes. Um, And I think that was partly inspired by a case out there where a guy was, he was put in the same situation as Janet by the local township. Mm -hmm. And it was an older guy and it was really horrible. But so now, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, with more education and stuff, I think those weed ordinances so-called that, prevent any any type of you know whether you want to have edibles in your front yard or anything that's not turf grass will start to convert those laws back to you know the pre-1950s 60s when all of those were passed and came in right like why it's not been around for that long why can't we go back you know it's just kind of bizarre how much it's taken hold Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a certain mindset of a certain period. And then, you know, I think now we've grown out of it, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> well, <and> thank <laughs> you to Janet and yourself for persevering in this case and, and getting the law passed. And I think you're a, a hero to many for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it was really Janet. Um I to, to be in that situation, it's a very lonely place. So anything that any of us can do, you know, to help others who are still dealing with it, I, I you know, I, I think that's super important. And so for our listeners uh, who want to contact you and find out more, how would they do that? Um, yeah, so my website, humangardener.com, has a contact form, and I, I, I monitor that. Um, regularly so I'll, I'll get back quickly um and also i'm on um facebook and instagram mostly for social media and it, messaging there is fine too uh it's a uh, you know at human gardener great and we'll put a link to your website in our show notes as well at humanegardener.com and so in wrapping up what would you tell a new home gardener who is looking to attract the wildlife to their garden? Maybe a couple beginning steps they could do. Yeah, I, I think maybe first um, kind of taking a lay of the land and seeing who's already there, what plants are already growing. Um, maybe some observation first. Um, and then and then you can build on that. So sometimes people think, oh, I got to rip all this out, but maybe there's already animals using it, you know, um, go slowly. Don't think that you have to rip out. For example, I still have a few non-native bushes because the birds use them for shelter. And until I have enough 
other ones, I'm not going to take that away, right? So, um, but even though I like to promote planting natives for the wildlife, um, just going slowly and then looking looking at just starting a little bit at a time, you know, you don't have to do everything all at once, just creating one little patch of a few different wildflowers or planting, uh, you know, a native shrub somewhere um, and then seeing who comes and building on that. So I don't, I don't think everybody has to be overwhelmed right away. Great advice. Thank you so much, Nancy. Yeah. Thank you. It's great talking with you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mock orange plant profile. Mock orange, Philadelphus coronarius, is a deciduous shrub with wonderfully fragrant white flowers in the spring and summer. The shrub is a terrific nectar source for butterflies and other pollinators. Planted in full sun for the best flowering. It prefers soils that are well-drained and slightly acidic to neutral. This shrub hates to sit in damp ground and usually only needs watering during periods of extended drought. Fertilize it by spreading a layer of compost around the root zone in spring. A high nitrogen fertilizer will encourage leafy growth at the expense of the flowers, so be careful not to spread any turf grass fertilizers around the shrubs when fertilizing a nearby lawn. The blooms on mock orange are most fragrant at night, and you should locate it where you can enjoy their wonderful scent. It produces flowers on new wood, so prune the shrub shortly after it finishes blooming each year. If it becomes overgrown, take out about a third of the older stems down to the ground. You can propagate it by taking cuttings in the summer. It is native to Europe and is hardy to USDA zones four to eight. Mock orange is disease and deer resistant. It can grow to 10 feet tall and wide. There are dwarf and compact cultivars available, such as Snowbell, which is about four feet high, and Illuminati Sparks, which grows to about three feet tall. Mock orange, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, last spring, I threw a handful of sunflower seeds onto the median strip between my sidewalk and the street and they came up and they bloomed now in November. They're short little ornamental sunflowers about three feet tall but they're looking really cheery there in the mid-November uh, time of year and I've cut a few to bring and have on my kitchen sink as well to cheer me inside. And speaking of November, 
listeners to Garden DC podcast in real time, note that we are skipping Thanksgiving week and we'll be back the following week. And I encourage you to listen to your favorite episodes again, or maybe to listen to some that you might have missed uh, during that Thanksgiving break period. In the local gardening world, if you're in the greater Washington, D.C., mid-Atlantic region, some events that you might want to attend include a poinsettia sale by the Horticulture Club at the Loudoun campus of the Northern Virginia Community College, and that is in Sterling, Virginia, and takes place on Tuesday and Thursday, November 28th and 30th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. There will be 16 different varieties that's one, six, 16 different varieties of poinsettias, some unusual ones, and they were all grown by the students there. And Brookside Gardens is hosting their annual Garden of Lights. It's opening November 17th and running through December 31st, except for the nights of November 20th to 23rd and December 24th and 25th. You can purchase your tickets through eventbrite.com. They are $10 per person for age five and older, and you can only buy them online. You cannot purchase tickets at the door. And that is Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland. And you can find out more information on the Montgomery Parks website as well. So in Vienna, Virginia, Meadowlark Botanical Gardens is holding their Winter Walk of Lights. And those tickets are available through novaparks.com. And you can walk through a half mile of winter walk paved trails. It is wheelchair and stroller accessible as well. And then for those fans of Doug Tallamy, he is speaking in the area on Sunday, December 10th at 7 p.m. to the IPC and Oakland Mills Interfaith Center Green Team. And you can find out about that free in-person event Um, They are looking for donations of time and money to be accepted in exchange for attending that talk. And the details are at omnigreenteam.org. That's O-M-I green as the the color green team, T-E-A-M dot org. And then finally, River Farm, the headquarters of the American Horticultural Society, is holding their holiday open house December 14th from 5 to 7 p.m. Look for this festive event to get you excited for the holiday season. There's live music, um, refreshments, and this is free and open to the public. Happy gardening! Hey there, garden lovers. This is Ray Eaton, founder of Discover Garden Tours. I'm here to invite you all to join us next April and experience the beauty of Dutch gardening and horticulture on our Discover the Netherlands tour. Please join us and speaker, author, and social media influencer, Kathy Jentz, for this once-in-a-lifetime garden adventure. We'll visit private and public gardens, flower shows and auctions, and much, much more. Highlights include the Kuchenhof Gardens, Hortus Botanicus Leiden, and the Flora Holland Flower Auction. The tour dates are from April 16th through April 25th, 2024. Full details and registration are available on our website at discoverourtours.com. 
Remember, space is limited, so if you don't want to miss out, I would highly recommend signing up today. We look forward to seeing you in the Netherlands and sharing this unforgettable journey together. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternative salons with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution's here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is the last word on my trip to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum by Christy Page at Greenprints. If you've never been to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum, it is definitely a sight to see. Make sure you have lauded yourself enough time though. There are so many paths to wander down and exhibits to view in this 1200 acre public garden. It was founded back in 1958 and attracts over half a million visitors each year. Their mission is to welcome, inform, and inspire all through outstanding displays, protected natural areas, horticultural research, and education. My recent trip to Minneapolis included a tour of the Arboretum that was nowhere near long enough. There are both paved and wooded trails, 28 specialty gardens, 5,900 unique species, cultivars, and hybrids, 44 plant collections, and many permanent pieces of art. There's even a farm at the Arbor, the restored barn, and home to a bee and pollinator center. Luckily, I was there before the high heat of the day. It was so hard to decide where to start. I saw bright areas of color that were just calling to me. I started up the trail and realized that I was on the peony walk. The colors and varieties were so beautiful. 
There were benches along the way if you wanted to rest a bit and just drink it all in. I then wandered down through the rose gardens. There were over 400 varieties displayed. The perfumed air was heady without being overwhelming. I understood why there were so many pollinators flitting about. I definitely could have stayed there all day, but there was so much more for me to see. I continued my meandering to the Japanese garden. Here, I stayed for a few minutes to drink in the tranquility. The waterfall drew my eye and made me feel a deep sense of peace. It was hard to believe that there was even anyone else around. It makes me want to build one in my own backyard. Off to the side, I noticed the hosta glade. I love hostas. To me, they're beautiful and elegant, and they're also one of the first plants I ever successfully planted and nurtured. The varying shades of green remind me of a Monet painting. This is another place I could have spent hours. I continued walking and followed various paths through wildflowers, azaleas, and ferns. I found myself at a small pond where I searched and searched for sight of a frog, but was not successful in spotting one. I continued along the woodland paths and managed to startle and be startled by several animals. There was an adorable weasel that seemed to be peeking out and then scampering away every time I got near. All too soon, it was time to head back to the main building in an information session. As I was headed there, I saw a sign for hedge maze. Oh, I wish I had seen that sooner. That will be first on my to-do list if I am ever in the area again. The educational session was enlightening. They have a wonderful goal and seeing how the Arboretum has evolved was captivating. I can see where their event space can be used for so many different things. There are several art galleries, but I just didn't have time to look. I did make a quick trip to the gift shop. They have a great selection of unique items, including stuff for fairy and gnome gardens. If I wasn't worried about what would fit in my carry-on for the flight home, there are several things I would have purchased. All too soon, it was time for me to leave. But I left with a feeling that I had seen so much and also knowing that it was only a fraction of what was there to be seen. One of these days, I will get back there and my first priority will be that hedge maze. This has been the last word on my trip to the Minneapolis, Minnesota Landscape Arboretum by Christy Page at greenprints.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. 
You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash garden DC. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.blogspot.com. Thank you. You can find and follow Washington Gardener on Twitter slash X, Instagram and Pinterest at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook at Washington Gardener Magazine. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Spotify and Apple. Open the Spotify or Apple app, search for Garden DC, check on the rate button, and select five stars.